I read now from uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, do just stick up your hand, and I'm sure someone would gladly bring you one. Uh, Mark chapter 15. If you've got one of these Bibles, that's on page 1023, 1023. And we are picking up the story uh, just after Jesus has breathed his last from the cross. Mark 15, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Please do take your seats and turn back in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. We're at the end of the journey. We've all learned a bit more about Mark's Gospel since January. And here we are at the end. I wonder if you've heard of a young woman called Dame Deborah James. She was from Surrey, actually, not from Woking. She was a school teacher, a, a wife, a young mum, when she learned that she had bowel cancer. During her terrible struggle with this disease, she became a charity campaigner and a blogger and a journalist, and her courage gave inspiration to many people. But she died in Woking at the end of June, age 40. Age 40, no age at all. On the day she announced that she was receiving end-of-life care, Deborah James launched a fund called ba The Bowel Babe. She called herself The Bowel Babe. 
and that has raised over seven million pounds. But in the final moments of a podcast, she spoke with great honesty, and she said these words, we'll see each other again, somehow, somewhere, somehow, dancing. And until then, please, please enjoy life, because it is so precious. I can't tell you, all I want right now is more time and more life. Isn't that what we want? More life? Deborah James didn't put it like this, but what she was essentially reaching out for was a resurrection hope. Something beyond the grave. A life that would never end. She says, we'll see each other again somewhere, somehow, but she doesn't know how. I want more time. I want more life. You fusion kids who are in here today. Deborah James was probably the age of your mum. 40. You don't want your mum to die, do you? We want to live on. Last night, Graham Gentry, one of our elders, and I visited an elderly gentleman from our church who is in the intensive care unit at St. Helier's Hospital. We read the Bible and prayed with him. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How does that psalm end? Surely, goodness and mercy, your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a resurrection hope. A hope that it won't end. That the goodness and mercy of God will take us to that better tomorrow that never ends. Here's the thing. In last night in the intensive care unit, Graham is an experienced nurse, a senior nurse. He sees this sort of stuff all the time. I don't see it all the time. I'm always quite shocked by what I see in these intensive care units. There were people there with wires and tubes coming out of goodness knows where. I'm, I'm pretty sure none of them actually wanted to be there. They were hanging by a thread. But here's the thing. One of them had a solid hope of resurrection. Amen? The man we prayed with has a solid hope of a resurrection beyond the grave. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Literally and bodily. And therefore Christians believe we will too. That's how important this teaching is today. It cashes out in real life at our point of greatest need. Jesus was raised from the dead, literally and bodily, so we will be too and we will enjoy life without end. Two quick points today. Actually, that's not true. They're not quick. I've got two points today. <laughs> Firstly, what happened? And secondly, what it means. We could spend weeks on this. We've only got 25 minutes. All right. What happened? Now, at King's Church, we always want to assume, when we're speaking from the front, that there's a mixture of people in the room. There will be plenty of Christians who are committed to Jesus and here to learn and grow in their faith, but there will be lots of people, we pray, with different views and exploring, and you're in a different place with your faith commitment. Now, I want to speak to you for a moment because we're really on the kind of... Um, the linchpin thing here, the resurrection of Jesus. Because if it's, if it's not true, the whole lot is baloney. We really are being silly. We're very silly to take 60 people on a youth camp and talk about Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, it's kind of silly. But if he did, all bets are off. 
because it means he's Lord of all. So it's very important uh, if you're a skeptic, you're not sure, you're doubting, whatever, to think about this. Did it really happen? Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you assume that Jesus couldn't possibly have done so, as many do nowadays, then you have to find an alternative explanation on the evidence we have. And of course, this would have started a very long time ago. I guess it would be fair to say that within 10 minutes of the news getting out, people started offering alternative explanations. But you can't really have risen from the dead. And it is reasonable to test a huge claim like the resurrection. We would be irresponsible not to. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, Christians are fools, and of all people, most to be pitied. So our thinking about it must be robust. So I want to think with you a bit this morning about the five main alternative explanations. I'm going to do this quite quickly. And I want to give them a fair hearing to help those of you who are skeptical or doubting. Five main alternative explanations for what happened with Jesus. One, the swoon theory. Swoon. Jesus, according to this theory, didn't actually die on the cross. But he swooned, passed out. And later he recovered to show himself to his disciples. He was resuscitated. That's the first theory. Second, delusion. A delusion theory. This uh, is, is a belief that it was a sincere delusion. The disciples had a passionate belief that Jesus couldn't possibly be dead. So they maybe had a group hallucination. Or they all saw something. Or somehow they convinced themselves that they were experiencing him as alive. Thirdly, the myth, the myth theory. In recent times, some have claimed that these accounts in the Bible are legends about Jesus that gradually grew up many years later, decades and decades later, and they were written down a long time after the event. So, they, you know, all sorts of myths crept in. That's the third one. Fourthly, conspiracy theory. It was a fraud. Some disciples actually stole Jesus' body, and they hid it, and then they claimed that they'd seen him. Fifthly, the symbol theory, not these kind of symbols, a symbol, a picture, a, 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 a metaphor. The resurrection, according to this, was always meant to be a symbol. Early Christians never meant us to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. They were writing these things as an artistic way to say that his spirit and teaching live on. Now, there's five main ways of explaining the resurrection of Jesus from a skeptical point of view. Mark's gospel, the, the book we, that Rachel read from, is widely viewed as the first gospel that was written down, the first written account of Jesus' life. It was published about 30 to 35 years after the events. That means it was within living memory of most of the participants. Most of the people involved in the story were still alive. And notice, in our passage, so if you've closed your Bible, do open it again to page 1023, Mark 15. Notice how carefully Mark sets out the facts for examination. And these facts that Mark gives us here actually undermine all those other alternative explanations I mentioned. Every part of our passage today seeks to eliminate the possibility that the, the resurrection was anything other than a great miracle swooning. Was Jesus really not dead but resuscitated? There's quite a lot of information here to undermine that theory. Now, Fusion, you've got a handout sheet, which is really cool. It's full color. It has a, a quiz on the back, a word search, but also on the questions, 
If you look at verse 43, you will see a question. What was the name of the man who asked for Jesus' body? See, this whole burial account is here to certify Jesus was really dead. The man who asked for the body was called Joseph of Arimathea. So you know his name and where he's from. And he's named as an identified witness who actually had Jesus' body wrapped up and sealed it in a tomb. Verse 46. Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And the Roman governor here is called as witness, Pilate. He was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. And he insisted on proof. So what was the proof? Verse 44. Verse 44. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. A Roman centurion was an expert. He bore witness to his boss. Yes, he's really dead, sir. And Pilate was the legal authority. And finally, two women are named as eyewitnesses. These are people who are in the Christian community. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Two women named... They think that about a quarter of the women, Jewish women at that time, were called Mary. It's like being a Catholic. A quarter of the women were called Mary, so they have to distinguish which Mary are we talking about. Okay? So one of them is Mary Magdalene, that's where she's from, and the other one, you know her because of her kids, uh, the mother of Joseph. So he is identifying eyewitnesses. You see what he's doing? These aren't just random lists of names. Multiple experts and witnesses prove that Jesus was really dead. He didn't swoon. And if you've heard what Pastor Steve preached in the last two weeks, which was so powerful about the crucifixion of Jesus, then really it is ridiculous, I think, to argue that he swooned and recovered and everyone believed he rose from the dead. During their centuries in power, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Not one is ever recorded as surviving the cross. But could it have been a delusion? What is it, a sincere delusion? Look at chapter 16, verse 5. Here these women come. There's three women named this time. And when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side. They are a group. There's a group that goes. And people don't have shared group hallucinations. We also mustn't overlook how completely unexpected this was. These disciples, everything in the text shows this. They purchased expensive spices for the body. That shows that they loved Jesus, but also they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. The reaction of the women to the angel shows their inability to believe in it. The first reaction is not, I knew it, I knew he'd do it. The first reaction is shock, confusion, and fear. And finally, we note that none of the men, the male disciples, were there. They'd gone into hiding. They didn't think Jesus was coming back. Now, scholars who know about the Jewish world of that time have pointed out that Jews did believe in the resurrection of the body, but they believed it would be for everybody at the end of time, not for one person in the middle of time. So it would have made no sense to them, their way of thinking. Could it have been a myth or a symbol? Notice Mark is careful to name real, historical, individual people and eyewitnesses. 
chapter 15, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. He's going to name three. Among them are Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. So here are three named among the group. There were others. These people were well known then in the early church. Mark doesn't just say some people saw them. The naming is Mark's way of saying, I'm writing what can be verified. Check it out for yourself. This resurrection was a historical fact. Richard Borkham's one of the greatest uh, scholars of the New Testament of our time. He's a professor at St. Andrew's University in Scotland. And he writes this. The women who acted as eyewitness informants in the early church with regard to the story in the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus were specifically Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome and Joanna. Two of these, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, were known to have witnessed the burial. Three other specific women were known to have been present at the cross. The evangelists, the writers of these Gospels, take great care to name people specifically so that we know it's true. Finally, then, is it a conspiracy? Could, could some disciples have stolen the body and then gone and kind of made up a story afterwards? Mark reveals this remarkable fact that it wasn't the disciples who buried the body, but a prominent man, a, a member of the ruling council, Joseph of Arimathea. And the women were going to anoint and honor the body. Where were the disciples? Afraid and confused and in hiding. Everything indicates they're too demoralized to carry out a hoax. And surely, if they wanted to, be, to know uh, where to steal the body, they would have been there to see where it was buried. One thing that's always struck me about this is that the disciples, the, ma the male disciples, when they did eventually come to believe, they all went on to live their whole life for Jesus Christ. They all went on to suffer for Jesus Christ. And most of those disciples were killed, were martyred for their faith. You wouldn't do that for a lie. So the evidence is pointing one way, isn't it? Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College in the United States. He's the author or editor of 75 books. And he looks at these theories and he refutes them with loads and loads of arguments. And then eventually, Professor Kraft concludes this. What if you reason this through and you conclude that the only plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? What fate awaits you? The answer is not obscure. Traditional Christianity awaits you, complete with adoration of Christ as God, obedience to Christ as Lord, dependence on Christ as Savior, humble confession of sin, and a serious effort to live Christ's life of self-sacrifice. Ask yourself the question, if you dare, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And take an honest look into your heart before you answer. What happened? Jesus literally and bodily rose from the dead as he had said he would. First point. Second point, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? If we come to accept that Jesus has really risen from the dead, what's the real world cash value on Monday morning? Now, for further explanation of that, we're going to just turn to another place in the New Testament where it gets unpacked more. 
Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. So do turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you have one of these uh, turquoise church Bibles, that's page 1156. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the greatest chapter on the resurrection. And we've only got time to read a few verses, but you'll get a flavor of what the resurrection means for us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? In a harvest, there's a first fruits, the first bits of the fruit, the crops coming through. They're the first ones. They're very precious to the farmer because the farmer knows now the first fruits have come, there will be a lot more crop later. So Paul here says, Christ, Jesus, who rose from the dead, is the first fruits, the first of a crop of many, many, many millions, billions of people who will also rise again because the first fruits have come. Fallen asleep means dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself who has put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself, that's Jesus, will be made subject to him who has put everything under him so that God may be all in all. What is this saying? Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is the first fruits of many, many people. And when he returns in power as Lord of all, he will put everything under him. He will be seen and known as King of Kings. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Every eye will see, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's better to bow the knee now in loving trust than later in fear and terror. Where are you in your relationship to Jesus today? What does it mean that Jesus has risen from the dead? It means everything now has changed in, in the history. Here's C.S. Lewis, a great uh, Oxford writer, professor. The New Testament writers speak as if Jesus' achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first person. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. The tomb was empty. He strode out in victory. The resurrection means that Jesus is Lord of all. And so a new era has begun and we live in it now. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that is true and we should do it. We should live our lives seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on compassion for the poor 
and the migrant and the vulnerable and the needy, we should obey that teaching and be people who are known for our sacrificial care for the poor and the needy. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on forgiveness is true. We should be known as people who forgive and are ready to overlook the faults and failings of one another, a people characterized by love. This is how all men will know you are my disciples, said Jesus, that you love one another. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on sexuality is true. People get this the wrong way around. The first question some people will ask is, well, what do you think about homosexuality or this particular issue in gender? The question, friends, is, did he rise from the dead? And if he did, then he is Lord of all. Lord of our bodies. And finally, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have nothing left to fear. You have nothing left to fear because he's already defeated your greatest enemy. But so many of us are bound by fear. We live in fear. And some of you are thinking, I don't think I really live in fear. What about anxiety? That's fear. What do you fear that is bigger than Jesus? He's conquered all his enemies. What could happen to you that is worse than death? He's got you in his hand. He has defeated death. He didn't just defy it. He didn't just deny it. He destroyed it. The Bible says, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian friend here, are you walking in your life in the light of Jesus' victory, his power? Or are you a slave again to fear, captive to your fears? Is there something you are afraid of that in your mind is bigger than Jesus Christ? Is there something in, you're afraid of it in your mind is bigger than Jesus? Christians sometimes talk about taking their burdens to the foot of the cross. True. I also want to add something else. Take your sins to the foot of the cross, yes, but take your fears to the empty tomb. Take your fears and sit at the empty tomb for a while and look inside and realize Jesus, Jesus left here some time ago and he isn't coming back because he's dealt with death, sin. Satan, the future is secure, glorious. Leave your fears in the empty tomb. Now, the end of Mark's gospel is a bit strange, isn't it? If you want to turn back there. Um, it's kind of not what we expect. Page 1024, you've got verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then you've got this line, and then you've got this other bit that's in italics. But the brackets there, the square brackets, are quite revealing. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. So this ending that is in our Bible there, they've rightly separated off because scholars agree that that's not the original ending. It's been added on later. And that means that there is a, 
uh, a church in America that believes in picking up snakes with your hand and drinking deadly poison, don't do it. Okay, it wasn't in the original. <laughs> it wasn't in the original. So what happened to Mark's ending? Is, the, is Mark just really abrupt and mysterious? Or did a page fall off the end of the original? Now, no one really knows. But, you know, in God's providence, this is a good ending to Mark. Look at what it says again. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There's a blank at the end of the story, and we need to fill it in for ourselves. Some people call this a suspended ending. It's like, you know those programs where there's a really tense ending, and then a screen comes up and it says, to be continued, and everyone goes, oh, no. But that's what Mark does. It's at the end, it kind of says, to be continued, and where it's continued is in your life. Because we all have enough information if we've read through Mark to know what happened next. We know that Jesus predicted he would be betrayed and handed over and spat upon and beaten and crucified, and on the third day he would rise, and that he would go again and meet his followers in Galilee. We know all of this is coming. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Where are we going to go? Stunned in the realization that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. What difference is it going to make to your life? You see, like these women, we should be struck with awe by the resurrection. And like these women, we should go and obey him. They're actually obedient. Look back at verses 6 and 7. And the fusion group, if you are still got your sheet here, look down at the second half of the page. Jesus has risen. Who did the, woman see, the women see at the tomb and what did he say? And here's what it is in verse 5 and 6. They entered the tomb and saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed and he said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. See, Mark's gospel began by announcing the news of the king. The kingdom of God is near, therefore repent and believe the good news. And Mark's gospel began the first half telling us all about this king, what he was like and his incredible, immense authority over creation, over death, over sickness, over Spirit, spirit world, over his intellectual authority, his moral authority. He's the king. And the second half of the gospel has been all about how the king has come to go to a cross. And right at the end, we realize that the king is dead. Long live the king. Because death couldn't hold him. And now he has risen and brought in this new phase in world history. And he welcomes all who come to him as his subjects as his friends. So as we finish our time in Mark, let me ask you, what is the king's call on you? What is the King Jesus' call on your life? What tasks has the Lord Jesus given you to do today and this week? And what are you going to do with your fear and anxiety? I want to close by telling you about a man who had a lot to fear, but he found that Jesus was bigger than his fears. Edward Coombs was a vicar 
in the Oxfordshire town of Banbury. He was known as the Gentle Vicar, and he served his church faithfully for 15 years. He was married and had three young children. The youngest of them was six. And one day he felt, felt ill, and he went to the doctors, and they discovered that he had a rare form of cancer, and he was diagnosed actually only six months before he died. Young man. Six months is not a lot of time, is it? Edward and his wife wrote to keep their church, family, and their friends up to date with what was happening. They shared their struggles openly, particularly the thought of leaving young children behind. A friend of mine was a member of that church, and here's what he said. The letters always ended in praise and were full of hope. I realized that in the face of absolute certainty of imminent death, this guy is not faking it. He had a hope that simply didn't make sense. People in the hospital couldn't believe it. We all saw how it cashed out in his life. We saw constant hope. And his last words were, Jesus is everything. That's how it cashes out. Five years ago at a little church in Banbury, they sang this song. I will sing the wondrous story contains these words. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet, and then he'll bear me safely over all my joys in him complete. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. Let's pray. He is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make your Lordship clear to us now, we pray, gracious one, and bring people here today into your kingdom soon. Amen. Amen.